0: I'm delighted to welcome you all to this special live episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of discussions which explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and which shape our lives in a myriad of ways. We have brought together a range of people including politicians, civil servants and scholars to explore that interaction between constitutional thought and practice, politics and other aspects of everyday life. Our subject today is the incredibly topical one of constitutional futures. My name is Caroline Humphress and with me, I have Malik Darlin, Jim Gallagher, Stephen Gethins and Catherine Steeler. I will now hand over to our panel chair, John Hudson, who will introduce our panel participants in more detail before our panel discussion begins.
1: Thank you, Caroline. First of all, we have with us Malik Darlin who's a principal of the institution Quraysh for Law and Policy. He's an academic activist, multi-jurisdictional qualified lawyer, a public policy expert, an accredited international arbitrator, mediator and negotiator, and a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. His latest publications include an extremely interesting book, The Hejaz, Integration, Islamic Statehood, and the origins of Arab self determination. Next, we have Jim Gallagher, a former civil servant who headed the Scottish Justice Department. He was the UK government's most senior advisor on devolution and other constitutional issues, working in the cabinet office under Gordon Brown. Third, we have Stephen Gethins, who has worked in the NGO sector, specializing in peace building, arms control, and democracy in the Caucasus and the Balkans regions. He's been an MP at Westminster, representing Northeast Fife, and the Scottish National Party's front bench spokesman for international affairs and Europe. And we also have with us Catherine Steeler, who was a Labour Party member of the European Parliament for 20 years, and is now Chief Executive Officer of Creative Commons. She's also now Senior Lay Member of the University Court at St Andrews. So, to start off with, and let's begin with Jim, what will you see as the core principles that should inform
2: future constitutional developments? Thanks, Sean. Well, I think the most important thing to begin with is the realisation that all constitutions serve social purposes, they're not ends in themselves. And quite often when they're created or changed, they address the issues of the day, the things that aren't working, Uh, the problems that are at the front of mind uh, and they strike different balances at different times between different things that you would want to have uh, and they strike different balances in different places. So if you look at the founding fathers in the US, which we're all focusing on a great deal today, they were reacting uh, against British absolutism as they saw it. uh, And they were, of course, driven by the ideas of the Enlightenment that were around at the time. Or contrast, uh, Germany at the end of World War Two, where the constitution that was written for Germany was intended uh, to distribute power, uh, particularly the federalisation, not just of Germany, but of Prussia. Or an example from much nearer home, uh, look at the Northern Ireland settlement after the Good Friday Agreement, in which the constitutional arrangements addressed themselves to particular social circumstances. So those are the things that should drive constitutional change. You have to focus on what social aims you're seeking to achieve, rather than just have fun writing legal documents. Actually, the lawyers are the last people you should involve.
1: Malik, you're a lawyer. Would you like to take on from there and defend the lawyers in their their principles here?
3: I'm afraid that I'll have to agree on that point that was made by <laughs> Jim in terms of the purpose and the functional aspect of constitutions. Let me focus on a different angle, which I think is going to be very important, which is going to be the way, we, the, the, way the nation state is featured or perceived in constitutions in the future. And I think this concept has become very troublesome and we see that Very much so, for example, in Scotland these days, because not only is it talking about a defined boundary, but the idea of nationalism itself has become very complicated in its construction within a rule of law framework. So therefore, and these these are normal occurrences, I mean, just as divine rule and and, and God and concepts uh, that were important in the past sort of ended up phasing out, I think this is going to be important. That is not to say that we need to include things or exclude them. I think this is precisely the point that we need to appreciate that so much has to be neither included or excluded, and that will allow us to have some level of flexibility for those institutions. A quick point to be uh, institutions that deal with the Constitution. A quick point on the Scottish question, and I know that my colleagues are are better equipped to, to speak about that, but I think Scotland, because of both of the Enlightenment tradition, I guess also the customary law aspect, is going to be important not only for constitutional law, but also for international law. The concept of self-determination, which is a very uh, important principle of international law, is really going to be guided and driven by how Scotland and how the United Kingdom deals with some of these constitutional changes.
1: Stephen, we've heard from the academics saying you've got to think deeply about these things and the civil servant saying you mustn't go too fast with all these things. As the former serving politician, how can we get practical effect to these general principles?
4: Well, practical effect can sometimes take place slowly. Sometimes that's a that's a good thing. That's a positive thing that you don't have change happening too fast. And sometimes it's not so good. I mean, as, as Jim rightly pointed out, constitutions are not the end in itself. You would hope that they provide for better governance and therefore better represent the will and aspirations of the, of, of, of the people within the state and also ultimately better governance. But we do have a challenge within the UK, which is the Constitution hasn't kept up with the public debate. And if you look at the thorny question, which I had to deal with when I was in Parliament, looking at Brexit and also looking at Scotland's relationship with the rest of the UK, you had a situation whereby the UK that joined the European Union was not the same UK that left the European Union. And actually, it wasn't even leaving the same um, European institutions. Both had changed. And that led to some fundamental difficulties. And now we've got the situation of how do people express their wills? How do do people express their self-determination? And that's a real challenge that we've got in the UK at the moment, because I don't think and others might disagree, but I don't think the Constitution has kept up with a modern democracy. And you saw that when the Constitution was at breaking point on a day-to-day level in the House of Commons when we faced gridlock in the Theresa May years over the EU. But also, how does Scotland now express its own ambitions to either remain within the, the UK, and how does that look, or to leave? And that's something that's going to be really important because we don't take these decisions within a vacuum. We take these decisions in the full glare of the international spotlight which is something that the US is going through today, that its constitution is in the full glare of the international spotlight as it seeks to represent whatever the will of the people is. Catherine.
5: I'm just thinking a little bit about what happened in Chile a a week or so ago and um, the vote to, to change their constitution. And they're going to have a second vote in April, which will elect people to be members of the Constitutional Convention there. And then they will draft the new constitution and it will be voted, I think, in August 2022. So I think there's so many different ways we can look at this. But I think the challenge ahead is, is how do we make sure people feel their voices heard? I think it's quite exciting.
1: you talked about the internal situation in the UK to some extent in response to political situations. How do you see the relationship between the supranational, the national, the subunits of multiple nations? And can constitutional change be coordinated within those or are
4: they inevitably just driven by politics? Well, everything's driven by politics, you know, the biggest factor in international affairs is domestic politics. So it is impossible with the best will in the world and even with the finest civil servants in the world, things are inevitably driven by politics and that's something that we can never get away away from, rightly or wrongly. But I do think that you need to have change. I mean, actually, I think the UK is now in a situation of if you want to preserve the union, and obviously I'm somebody who, who, who believes that Scotland should be independent. But are we not at the stage of rather than adding a little bit of devolution, what happens when there is a dispute between the different administrations? What happens if a devolved administration tries to take a different view? You know, we've seen that with the internal market bill that's going through Parliament, that's going through Westminster at the moment, that will create a whole new way that the UK operates and way that, the, that Westminster interacts with the devolved administrations. And it goes against the expressed will of those devolved administrations. Now, the politicians at Westminster might say, well, we're Westminster, we're sovereign, so you're just going to have to live with it but surely we can do better than one political force just telling everybody else that they've just got to to live with it when we live in a multinational state.
1: Looking at the complexities of constitutions as made up of multiple units, we're talking about uh, within states or subunits of states. But one of the things we've got interested in is how what are traditionally seen as private sector units might fit into this. For example, multinational companies and so on. So should we, and I think Manik should probably start on this, should we be thinking of constitutions as something that also treat relationships between the private citizen and private sector unit, or is this purely something between public and private?
3: So, uh, thank you. That, that's actually a very, very important question and it, it connects to uh, what Stephen talking about, because I do think if we take the citizen, individual and the collectivity and this is not meant to be academic as much as sort of practical we are entering this space where we're trying to distinguish between what is local and what is international or multinational right and these are practical issues right now the devolution exercise seems like it's an internal issue at some stage in what we call the self determination trap you, you, you end up being on the external side of things. And that changes how we view things. And I would say there are a couple of things to think about. Before we talk about the enterprise aspect, constitutions can speak to, to a, a community and it can speak to this idea of a golden age, of an idealized society, the time to reclaim that. Benedict Anderson talks about it. In that conversation, there's this idea of aspirational and the Bill of Rights conversation. The problem, as we're seeing today in the US, realizing that there are other presentations of how democracy, the citizen communicates, behaves, including corporations that own the the media, that interact in different ways. It reminds me of that Today, more than ever, I believe that a free media in the sense that reporting the facts is so important to protect the individual and to protect the democracy, the institutions. We're really facing this for the first time. We were told so many different things about the polls, but we've learned the importance of this. I've never thought in one day that I would have a very strong socialist view about something. But today, more than ever, I do also think education, to understand your political system, it is so crucial and should be something fitted into the Constitution. Catherine.
5: I think that education is so important and I think in the American context, they call it civics, don't they? Um, When you look at what happened, say, um, about European Union education in our Scottish school system, that when you were in primary five, you did a five week course about how the European Union worked. And then there was also the Euroscholar competitions and different things that were there, which were just great in terms of Talking about, say, how a European system was working, and I remember going to all these different primary schools and talking about Europe, and and it was just a wonderful way to have a conversation about something that uh, is part of, well, was part of our democratic checks and balances, but also part of our was part of our, our uh, part of our civic education system within the Scottish education. So I think that yes, civics is really important, and there are different ways we can look at that, different ways to learn. And I think having open education resources to be able to use that and share that information is really important, too, so that the richness of that education can be shared.
3: I felt it's important to emphasize. I'm not going to say I'm talking about corporate America, but I am talking about corporate America and that is. it, It is a very, very dangerous slippery slope. So, yes, let's assume that these multilateral frameworks that we're taking through agreements that are being being entered into. In a way, the way Americans rationalized it and struggled with international law and multilateral agreements is whether or not it sits above the constitution or as a, as a legislation and so on. And I think it, it, it has to translate into something that, that there is an intention behind these laws. And as long as it's accepted, it is law. It doesn't matter where it comes from. We see this already today. I mean, an example that you were talking about in terms of uh, uh, disputes, investor state dispute settlement. You know, that was a product of a colonial time where you had developed countries investing in host countries, which are mainly developing. But the host countries can't sue the state because of sovereign immunity. So the idea of sovereignty exists. But today that we see China investing in other countries, we're not happy about these principles. So therefore, where do we protect that sovereignty of the state and the collective? I think the big the two other points I would make just so that we continue with the discourse is they is the idea of jurisdiction and borders. Things are becoming highly borderless. So how can you realistically speak about you know, what is the nation, what is the state, when we are facing today COVID-19, which needs to be collaborated across in terms of public sector, which takes you to the citizen themselves. Regulating the Internet as a space requires the individual to be a party to any settlement, as well as the industry, you know, Silicon Valley and governments. It can't be an agreement between states anymore. So this is where constitution, the private individual, the citizen has to feel a closer proximity to what the Constitution is, not not as an ideology but as a, a legal instrument.
1: Jim, you're someone who's moved from governance of a country to someone who's involved with corporate governance in some ways. Would you like to move on, comment on what Malika said and add to this particular
2: discussion? I think so, yes, I think this is a this is a really interesting area. And uh, as Malik says, there are some things which don't recognise the existence of borders but require to be regulated across borders. And focusing uh, sovereignty and authority inside borders is a way of failing to do that. All governance has to be multi level. Uh, some things work relatively well in a small area, and sometimes a very small area. Other things have to go. Certainly regionally in terms of continents, and some things ultimately uh, only work if most of the world sign up for them. So we need different levels of government. And US history is quite interesting in this respect when uh, when you look at how the federal government extended its reach around the end of the 19th century to get at the robber barons who were powerful across the states and non- not accountable to any individual state. And the similar issues arise, as Malik implies, in relation to multinational corporations today. And if one focuses solely on territorial sovereignty, which is not the only constitutional issue in the world, by the way, uh, though people in Scotland tend to talk about it all the time, uh, but focusing solely on territorial sovereignty means that you run into the kind of problems that the EU has run into in difficulty, for example, uh, of addressing itself to taxation of multinational companies. I mean, I'm, I'm very fond of the Republic of Ireland, but my goodness me, it makes a lot of money uh, out of um, taxes that are really due to German buyers of uh, Microsoft and Apple products. So, those challenges cannot be addressed other than that, um, uh, and at different and wider uh, levels of government. And one of the challenges that we all face at the moment is that because people feel disempowered by this globalisation, because they think things are beyond their control. They want to kind of phrase to take back control and to centralise or grab power inside the nation state. And the big lesson of a globalised world is that that doesn't work. It's a step backwards. It's a step backwards in my view, uh, in terms of Brexit, because it will make the uh, people in Britain much less able to exercise influence over things that will really impact on them. And it would be a setback for Scotland too, for the same sorts of reasons, in in my view. So the big challenge in all territorial constitution questions is the allocation of tasks and responsibilities to different geographical levels, and as um Stephen rightly said, how these levels interact one with another.
1: Malik, we've been talking about Developments which are underlying trends, what might be seen as structural developments affecting constitutions. But if there's one unexpected stimulus to constitutional change that might occur and might have a major effect. What would you see that as likely to be?
3: I already mentioned the media and um, and the idea of borderless issue the borders. I mean, and I would add to that climate change. I really think that one of the biggest tests for Scotland and I I, you know, I, I stand as an academic, someone who's researched various sort of aspects of devolution and other experiences, including countries that stepped out of that had revolutions, like actual revolutions and how they perceive constitutions. I think the way Scotland is going to interact with some of the pressing issues especially that involves a generational, intergenerational equity, right? This idea of, well, the forefathers wrote this constitution, so why should I abide by it, is going to be very interesting to see that enshrined in any exercise of constitutional rights. So I would say I see these as science-based issues, not as ideological issues, not nationalism for the sake of nationalism. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised one day if you and I, you know, start talking about uh, the individual, like genuine intelligence, as in a human intelligence versus artificial intelligence, what forms judgment and reason and so on. And Those are difficult questions which we haven't, we're barely catching up with. And, you know, we we are talking about tort law, but not as far as what it means. It sounds so futuristic, but I don't think it's going to be as far as we, we think.
1: Stephen, do you see any particular and possibly unexpected external cause of change
4: in constitutional matters? I think we've already seen some really quite unexpected, but really rather profound changes in in constitutional matters. Certainly within the UK, and I hesitate to talk about the United States, but of course today we're seeing the issue of the electoral college and and, and issues that go back to the to, to to the founding fathers and the establishment of the United States playing out today. And who knows how that will play out over the, the the coming days? As Jim said, I know I know I referenced this earlier on. But these are constitutions are and they should be living, breathing organisms that sit there and and change. And and, and Malik made a really important point, which is when he was talking about issues like nationalism for the sake of nationalism, or Jim talking about the constitution not being an an end of itself. One thing that we always need to remember is that the decisions that we take will have an impact on people's lives. And we're in the teeth of this dreadful virus. It's had such a devastating impact on people's lives. But perhaps the biggest challenge that we face in this political generation is that of climate change and the climate emergency. So what is the best level at which to tackle that? And it is at a global level. You've got, in my opinion, the European Union, which has been a really good mechanism allowing states to retain their independence and their sovereignty, but interact with each other. And my and my difference with with Jim would be, and, and, and this will be for another day, and Jim and I have, our differences, and Jim has very well held views that I happen to to disagree with in in friendly terms, of course. But I think the European Union has, of course, changed the very nature of the United Kingdom and the way in which the constituent parts of the United Kingdom interact with each other, not least on climate change, where we're better to deal with these things at the highest possible level. And the most effective way of dealing with that, with the mechanisms we have, is at a European level. Jim, what are the
1: dangers in terms of a particular stimulus,
2: leading to a permanent constitutional change? Well, I think they're relatively easy to see in some cases. So it's always said that generals are fighting the last war. Uh, we make the change to the Constitution or we write the Constitution in reaction to something. Uh, and the danger of a constitutional change <coughs> is, of course, you crystallise that reaction And the problem you really need to deal with is the next one, not the last one. One can argue, for example, we've been talking a lot about the US today, uh, that the format of the US Constitution addressed itself to the needs of the time. A reasonable question whether that distributed thing or whether that form of the uh, Electoral College, for example, is appropriate to the needs of today or, or to be slightly more mischievous. If one were to make a major constitutional change in the UK, let's call it Scottish independence in reaction to Boris Johnson, uh, that would be reacting in something which perhaps might not be around forever. So the danger is that the one always, uh, this is why constitutional amendment needs to be possible, but not all that easy. It has to be a process of special solemnity and the US constitution has got to the stage where it's almost unamendable in practice, although There is a procedure, whereas the UK Constitution uh, is in one sense too flexible. One can never really tell when you're making a constitutional change of whether the Prime Minister's doing something odd this week. Uh, One of our weaknesses is that we haven't got a clear and well-defined process by which we change the UK Constitution and maybe that's something we'll need to think about as well. Given the flexibility of the UK
1: Constitution, which Jim has talked about, Uh, I give you each a chance now to be Boris Johnson for two or three minutes and to change one thing about the UK constitution and possibly something that may be slightly surprising to suggest from your own perspective. Let's start with Stephen on this one.
4: Thanks for that. I mean, I'd obviously Boris Johnson might be temporary, but of course Brexit isn't um, and there's been that fundamental change, but there's also the point before I go into it. Jim made a really important point there, which is and there's always a danger of anybody in politics or involved in policy making, which is you're always trying to combat the last crisis, not the crisis that are coming up in the future. And actually that's a really pertinent question now, given the COVID crisis, which is going to change the way that we live our lives. And I'm not sure those of us in the, in the world of policy are discussing these issues have quite got to grips with it. Um, But if I were to change one thing. You know, I think I'd make the constituent parts of the UK, and you might not be surprised about this, um, to hold that genuine sovereignty and actually be that partnership of equals so that we can choose. And actually, what's really interesting is if you look at the Nordic states, the Nordic states are some of them are in the EU, some of them are not, some of them are in the Euro, some of them are not. Some of them are fully independent, some of them are not. But they interact with each other in a much more grown up basis and one of which is of greater respect. And there's greater cooperation in some ways as well, even though many of them are independent and sovereign. And I think we can learn an awful lot of lessons throughout these islands and I include Ireland with the way that we could interact with each other with the way that the Nordics interact with each other, even with very different political setups and being members of different supranational
2: bodies. If I had, you know, if I was Boris Johnson, well, there are lots of things I might do. I, I think if I had the magic wand, I, I'm in kind of the same territory as Stephen uh, in that the, the the bit of the UK's constitution that isn't working uh, is the territorial arrangements. is uh, isn't working uh, in respect to Scotland and that, that we have been in a Uh, in a constant uh, dispute about independence for more than a decade now. Uh, And we need to find a settled solution for that. And a settled solution that everyone or most people can live with uh, rather than half win and half lose. And I think that's a really important point. Uh, And it's not uh, working all that well in other respects. And the really interesting thing that's going on at the moment is not an argument between Scotland and England in an argument between uh, the north of England and London. And the most, the most centralised country in Europe is England. Uh, English local government has been systematically disempowered for a long time. Uh, English regional government has never really gotten off the ground until very recently and only uh, uh, uncertainly. Uh, And the result is that all power is exercised inefficiently and badly uh, in Westminster and Whitehall. The thing that's just begun to happen is the revolt of the northern mayors over Covid. And it might just be the beginning of genuine decentralisation in England, a genuinely constitutional moment, if you like, in the history of England. And that, it seems to me, has at least the possibility of changing the territorial nature of the UK and being constitutionalised into a rather more federal settlement, which might just be a bit more comfortable Uh, for the Scots and the Welsh and the Northern Irish, each of whose situations are are, are slightly different one from another. And then we address ourselves to the question at the beginning, what's the social purpose of this territorial arrangement? It's to provide external relations, perhaps. Uh, It's certainly to provide economic opportunity and shared markets and all those things that the EU uh, has been trying to provide for, uh, for some time. But it's also in my view to provide social solidarity across the territory. Uh, it's a way of sharing resources across the islands or, of the British Isles, including in this case, uh, Northern Ireland. And that, if we go back to the purpose of constitutions and the purpose of the territorial one, seems to me to be the single most important test. Uh, German taxpayers don't pay Greek pensions, but London taxpayers pay Liverpool pensions, and that's social solidarity in operation. Thank you
5: very much. Catherine. I think in terms of where we are now, we have to explore ways that we can think about a future constitution that embraces what is you know, the strength of the United Kingdom, if that is the way that we want to see it. And I think that's the way, certainly from my perspective, I want to see it. it I, I, I think that the priorities for the European Union are getting the Green Deal right, thinking about a digital future, addressing some of the digital challenges really around misinformation, something that, you know, is important as we reflect on things this evening. And and I think that with or without the United Kingdom, there are challenges within the European Union and they will be addressed uh, moving forward um, with the priorities that have been set by the European Commission, which are clearly within the remit of climate change, digital transformation and trying um, to make uh, the cohesion of the money that they're working with uh, work best for the citizens of the EU.
1: And lastly, Malik, from probably a more a fully global perspective.
3: As I mentioned that, I think that one of the most important things that the, the biggest lessons I personally had with with transitioning states and, and grafting, looking at individuals, drafting constitutions is the idea of legal Objectives and intentions. I do believe that in abeyance, in the fact that a constitution is silent about certain aspect, there is legal intentions. I think that in itself is a tool for future generations to engage. It's not because it was an omission; it was just a space to allow more uh, growth for institutions like courts. And I think that should be utilised.
0: Wonderful. Thank you very much. So it just remains for me to warmly thank our panel chair, John Hudson, and also our panellists. And finally, but certainly not least, you, the audience. We very much hope that you've enjoyed this evening's discussion. If you have, we warmly invite you to explore our podcast series, which is called Talking Constitutions and it's available to download from Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Good evening, everyone. Thanks very much.